Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, everyone. Um, the Bible reading today is taken from 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 28. At the end, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. You join me by saying thanks be to God. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to see you all this morning. Thank you for coming. If you are joining us for the first time, we're happy to have you. Always happy to have new people. Um, amongst us. But if you aren't joining us for the first time, um, it's good to see you still. Thank you for braving the weather and for not um, snuggling up on your bed. (laughs) Almost, right? Almost, almost. So we have been going through a series in the book of 1 Thessalonians um, since February. And I like the people in this church. They have patience, right? They've been been with us the entire journey. So over the last four-ish months, We've gone through five chapters of the book of 1 Thessalonians, and today we're ending the series. Yeah, don't worry. There's always something better in store, okay? So just keep your ears peeled. But we've seen a lot of things, a lot of really, like Auntie Chido was saying um, today, God has just been with us the entire series. We've learned a lot about the nature of the church. We've learned a lot about what it means to walk with Christ, waiting for Christ in the in-between, right? He's, he's coming. We all know that. And some of you might say, well, <laughs> I'm not sure, but it seems like people have always believed that. And so we've learned a lot of things about what it means to live in the in-between, between Jesus' return and your life right now. And so today we come to the end. And as I was thinking about today's sermon, um, our... I started thinking about romance. Don't worry, the connection will be plain in just a little bit. But I started thinking about romance, and not romance in the Bible, romance, romance. Um, I don't know about you guys, but when I see two people, a guy and a girl, you know, I want to sort of find out, are they, you know, are they together? Is there something going on between them? And some of you know what I mean. There are three of you having a conversation. But then it seems at some point that actually it's two people that are really having this conversation. You are a spectator watching what is happening between two people, right? Romance. Or you see two people in church. You haven't heard anything, but you just see how, you know, they are suddenly nicer to each other. This person hasn't come. This person, and some of you know the example I'm talking about, right? A couple of weeks ago, you just see two people driving into church together. Um, it was raining, this person suddenly goes and it's just convenient, it's on their way, even though this one lives in phase one, and this other person lives at Chevron. 
but they go and pick this other person who is I'm not I'm not mentioning names no names no names <laughs> and they just bring this person to church because of course we have to care for our brothers and sisters but the ones I particularly I'm interested in is the ones we see on TV or movies, celebrity couples. So who are your favorite celebrity couples? Um, some of you might remember the movie High School Musical. Um, I, I wasn't in high school when I watched High School Musical, so I shouldn't have. But one of the cute things about that movie was just seeing Zac Efron and Vanessa Hudgens. You know, just sort of what they were doing in school, in high school. You know, even though that's not possible in Nigerian school, but <laughs> what they were doing in school, all the things they were achieving together. And then I was really happy to hear afterwards that they got together. And you know, they, it seemed like the romance from the movie actually carried on. But then they broke up. They broke up. Some of you might remember um, Benifa. Anybody remember Benifa? Ben Affleck and J-Lo. In whatever year it was, 2005, 2006, you know, they met on the, scene, um, on the set of a movie and they sort of hit it off. You know, they just, it just seemed like this romance was fantastic. It was made for them. There was a lot of, you know, just a lot of celeb, a lot of um, reporting news around the whole thing. She featured him in a music video. He proposed to her with a $2.5 million engagement ring. <laughs> My wife is here judging me for the, the panda I bought for her when I proposed to her that broke three months after the engagement. But that's a story for another day. $2.5 million engagement ring. Ah, when is the wedding? Everybody's really excited and all of that. And then we hear the wedding has been postponed and the relationship has been called off. But yes, they are back now this year, 19 years after. Let's hope things work out well this time around. But I think the one that pained me the most and pained a lot of people the most is Brangelina. Brangelina. They met on the set of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, where they were actually married. And it seemed like, man, this thing was destined to be. Destined to be. The romance continued from the movie. He was still, you know, in a relationship. He was still in his marriage. He was trying to end his marriage with Jennifer Aniston at the time. But he was still in the marriage. But it didn't matter. Like, I found J um, Angelina. I love this babe. I'm going to be with her for the rest of my life. They dated for a long period of time. And then they got married. And all of us believed it would be happily ever after. Until we wake up one day and we see that they are divorcing. And I remember reading a tweet at the time. And someone said, can we all just give up now? <laughs> if it's not possible for them, it's not possible for any of us. There's a certain sense in which the people we look at and put our hopes in, whether consciously or unconsciously, tell us about what is possible or not possible. But in that same industry, where you've had people who've been married for 55 hours, you've had people, and no jokes, that, that's an actual thing. Someone was married for 55 hours. But you've had people like Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson his wife, who we married for 33 years this year. 
They met on the set of a movie again, again. And maybe there's something here for as many of us that are single. Just going to acting. <laughs> and maybe you meet your spouse. They met on the set of a movie and they hit it off. And they get together, they've been married for 33 years now, had kids together, had COVID together. Um, she, has to, she has breast cancer, they go through it together, he stops his career, he, she pauses her career at some point for him to sort of move off, and then he does the same thing as well. Just really great people, great examples. Perhaps the best of them or the longest of them is Denzel Washington and his wife, 39 years this year. How can you stay and thrive and be kept as you go through that process? Maybe some of us know the pain of this separation that I'm talking about. Maybe you have gone through a divorce or you know somebody who's gone through a divorce or you have experienced the effects of a divorce, that there was a lot of hope promise, a lot of anticipation, a lot of, this is who we will be for the rest of our lives. And then, two years down the line, it's like, this thing can't work. Actually, that was the same feeling that the Thessalonians had as we were reading this passage that has just been read to us this morning. Paul has said a lot of wonderful things about what it means to be a Christian, what it means that we are God's people, God has called us out of darkness, what it means that Jesus is returning, and all the instructions, and then now the question on the lips of the Thessalonians is, okay, all of these great things, but Paul, how can we be kept through the waiting? And Paul's answer is our passage this morning. He says that we are kept through the waiting by God's commitment through God's community, and by God's commission. We are kept through the waiting by God's commitment, through God's community, and by God's commission. Now, we look at those things very briefly this morning, but I'm praying and hoping that if there's anybody here who is discouraged, who is feeling hopeless, who doesn't have an idea of what the journey looks like, or maybe you are familiar with your own feelings, like a bad car engine that starts and stops, starts and stops, is moving but actually gets nowhere. I pray that this morning will be encouraged and will find strength in Jesus' name. So let's pray again and ask the Lord for his help. Lord, we sang that song, Jesus, you're enough. We, it was beautiful to sing, but Lord, it wasn't just a beautiful song. Lord, it's the confession of our hearts. So please help us this morning to see that, to believe that to walk in that, and Father, oh God, to live as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Kept by God's commitment. If you remember to me, sermon last week, what we saw in verses 16 to 22 of chapter 5 was a whole load of instructions. Rejoice always, which is hard, right, with some of the things that go on in our lives. Pray without ceasing. Um, I'm stuck in traffic and I'm tired and I have to work and I have to parent. And all of these things don't quench the spirit. Um, prophecies, let prophecies thrive amongst you. Yeah, yeah. There's just a lot of things. But thank God Paul doesn't continue with more instructions. Paul continues with a blessing. And he says to us in verse 23, he says, May God himself sanctify you through and through. 
And I don't know about you, maybe some of us are suspicious, right? You are familiar with 419, section 419 of the criminal code. That's where the name 419 comes from. So if you don't know, it's good to come to church. You know something today. And the whole idea is that people can dupe other people by representing to give something that they actually don't possess. And you're looking at this and you're like, but how do I know that this is not just a good imitation of the original? Well, one of the ways you know whether something is fake or not is who gives you the thing. So if I give you a check for 10 million naira, because we're in church, you won't slap me. You collect the check, you say thank you so much, but you think your mind like this guy, up, down. He's not even up to 100K. <laughs> but if Dangote gives you 10 million naira check, whether he's wearing slippers or he's wearing t-shirts, you know that this guy is worth billions both in Naira and in dollars. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here. Look at verse 23. He says, may God himself. Isn't it refreshing, friends, that your Christian destiny is not in your hands, but in the hands of God? Some of you are familiar with your own failings. And if everything about you had to do, if everything about your salvation had to do with yourself, you know where you'd have been right now. Paul is reminding all of us. He's saying that may God himself, God is the one who has orchestrated this project and God is the one who will bring it to pass. It's not in how well you keep the law, friends. It's in what God does. May God himself sanctify you through and through. When Paul talks about sanctification there, he's basically saying, may God make you holy. And some of us don't like the word holiness because it reminds us of backgrounds that we've come from or people who say you can't wear earrings. But actually, holiness is a good word. Holiness is not a curse word. Holiness is basically saying, may God make you more like him that may you become the kind of person who actually images God well. And that's what Paul is saying here, that may God sanctify you through and through. May God make you his holy people. In other words, holiness is not primarily about what you do. Holiness is primarily about who you are becoming. Are you becoming more like Christ or less like Christ? And not just about what you wear and what you do. We see what Paul says here in verse 23. He says, may he sanctify you through and through. Another translation, depending on the Bible you are using, says, may he sanctify your whole spirit, soul, and body. And can I just say here that a lot of things, a lot of people have made a big deal out of this spirit, soul, body thing. But Paul is not trying to tell us, he's not trying to give us a lecture in psychology here. Paul is not trying to tell you that, oh, there are these three parts of the human person. Paul is basically saying that may every part of your person be made more and more like Jesus. Often the Bible will use the term inner man and outer man. May every part of you be made more and more like Jesus. May every part of you be sanctified, be changed, be transformed. So the question, friends, is how are you doing in through and through sanctification? Maybe you're not a Christian here. The Bible says that all of us in our spirits are dead apart from God. And no matter how many good works we do, we are dead. We can't walk our way to please God. Some of you know this very well. You've probably lost loved ones. I lost 
a family relative last year, and we had to go for the burial, my grandmother. And you know, one of the marks or the rites that you actually perform is to actually walk past the open casket. And she was beautiful. She was well-dressed. She had her gaily. They even did makeup for her. But she was dead. That is what her good works are like in the presence of God. No matter how beautiful they are, they don't stand up to the person and the holiness and the worth of God. You are dead in your trespasses and you need Christ to make you alive. You can't earn your way to God. Paul says, may our spirits be made like Christ. But then see, he also talks about our bodies. And we've heard a lot in this series, Toki preachers from chapter 4, where Paul was saying that the will of God is our sanctification in our bodies, our sexuality. How do you use your sexuality to honor God as a married person or as a single person? So I won't spend more time to that on, on that today, but can we talk about something else? Like food. How does your eating show whether you are becoming more and more like Christ or less and less like Christ? We're about to shake tables this morning. So I recently went to my friend's house, um, um, my good brother, Dami. I went to his house, and they offered me food. And I should say that Sarah wasn't around in the house. But I thought, of course, it's Dami, he's my brother, I should eat. Now, contrary to what my stomach tells you, I don't eat a lot, okay? I typically eat one to two times daily, okay? But forget about what I eat and when I eat. That's not what we're talking about right now. <laughs> so um, they bring out, yes, I'll eat, and they bring the food. And I looked at it, and I was like, now, wow. Am I five years old or six years old that they're serving me this portion? <laughs> Shall let's eat. I ate. It was a good meal. And the funniest thing was, that day was like, it was like a revelation for me. Like, I was actually satisfied. I was actually full. And it struck me, why do you have to eat the way we fill our car tanks in Nigeria? We put in, put in, put, 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 until the petrol is dropping out from the car. And then you say, yes, now I'm full. Why? Why do you have to eat like that? And then it struck me that even though you don't eat a lot, you don't eat as one that honors God. And maybe some of us are in that category as well. That your eating actually shows that, man, there's something else here. There's another Lord that is dominating here. <laughs> but some of you actually, you are laughing because you're like, of course, talk to all the fat, indisciplined people. But actually, Paul also says to Timothy, in 2 in Timothy, in 1 Timothy rather, that there are people who will come out in the last days or in the last times and they will tell people to avoid certain kinds of food. In other words, your relationship to food, whether you eat a lot of it or you eat not enough of it, shows actually who is your Lord and your Master. And so people can actually see that, man, this person looks self-controlled on the outside. This person looks like they don't eat a lot, but actually it is not because you are honoring Christ. It is because you are thinking about your shape and your figure in the gym. How do you eat? But since we have already started this one, 
We might as well just talk about the elephant in the room, modesty. And when we think about modesty, we think about the ladies, oh, plunging necklines and tight trousers and short skirts. And that's true. Our clothing should reveal whether we're becoming more like Christ or not. But can we just have a chat, guys? Why do we feel the need to wear certain types of tight clothes? Why? It is because we have been conditioned in our minds that the tighter your clothes appear, the more people can see your gains. <laughs> right? The more you look desirable and attractive. Paul is saying that kind of thinking is actually not like Christ. It is a anti-sanctification. It is the opposite of holiness. It is becoming less and less like Christ. Someone, gave this, someone told this story about how in, it was in Australia, but the equivalent of NYC. And people were, both males and females were working, they were doing some, you know, um, manual work. And the ladies were wearing sport bras. And the guys were there, topless, and they were all working, carrying heavy things. And then one of the guys now goes to the person controlling the, who is leading the ladies, and he says to the lady, like, please tell your girls to actually cover up. Like, this is, this is hard for the guys. And then she says, okay, I will tell them, but also tell your guys to put on their clothes as well. This is hard for the ladies. And I'm saying that any time that we think that holiness has to do more with one gender than the other, we are living the opposite of what it means that Christ is sanctifying us and making us like his. Paul says that our entire whole spirit, soul, and body is meant to be transformed to the image of Christ. But when does he end? Paul says in verse 23, in the NLT, he says, until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Until he comes. And the idea here is that of an occasion, like a wedding. We are preparing for something that is going to happen, something grand that will occur. And some of you know this. When myself and my wife were about to get married, there were a lot of decisions that we made. And one of the decisions that I made is, I know Lagosian alagas, they are out to shame, right? They are out to shame you financially. And so they'll keep asking for money, for money, for money. And in ridiculous denominations, five naira, 10 naira, 20 naira, they'll be asking you all sorts of silly things. So I knew you had to prepare for that. But I knew that also, they, they're not just out to shame you financially, they're out to shame you physically. They'll often ask the guys, Carry your spouse. I knew that was going to happen. So what did I do? I got dumbbells. I got dumbbells, and every day I'll carry dumbbells. I'll do press-ups. I'll carry dumbbells. The people of God shall not be ashamed. I shall not be put to shame. And God was gracious. The day came. I was not put to shame. Forget about what I look like right now. But that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, until the day when Christ comes, we are meant to be sanctified until that time. And some of you know, you've been Christians for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. You know that it is not, any, it is not just that things are not working out or, or things aren't as difficult as when you started. You are still in the journey. You are still in the process. In other words, friends, we, we don't rest until we get home. We don't rest until we see the face of Christ. 
We don't rest until we become like him and he returns. And you know what God is saying to us here is that a Christian is not just known by what they say today. A Christian is known by how they live all of their lives. And some of us can talk a good game. Some of us can talk about, oh, I did this, I did that when I was on campus. But the question is, how are you living right now? How are you being made into the image of Christ? This is the reason why God doesn't take us away when we become Christians. God is making us and molding us and transforming us into the image and likeness of Christ. And some of you ladies know what I'm talking about. There's a difference between what you can achieve with your makeup artists in two hours, what you can achieve in four hours, and what you can achieve in six hours. There's a difference between if you have a good makeup artist, they can just, oh, if the time is too short, they can, oh, let's just quickly try to do this, let's just quickly do that. But the more time they have, the more they make you like you want to be or like you want to become. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here, that God has kept us here. God is changing us. God is at work in our lives so that until the day of Christ, we fully become what God has destined us to become. But so that we don't think Paul's blessing is just good wishes, he says to us in verse 24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Oh, you missed that. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. In other words, God is committed to accomplishing that which he has begun. God does not have any abandoned projects. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says that God will perfect, he will be at work in you until the day of Christ. God will accomplish what he has started. You see friends, when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just dying in hope. He wasn't dying and making a wish. When Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't dying to offer the possibility of salvation. Jesus died to offer the certainty of salvation. What he has begun, he will accomplish. And so I love what John 10, 28 says. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you belong to Christ today, friends, he is committed to keeping you safely all the way home. But you see, sometimes we think of the good news of the gospel like the Afghanistan evacuation, when the U.S. were trying to leave Afghanistan. And some of us saw the pictures where there were people rushing to the plane. And some of you can't even remember that there was a particular one where the plane was already taxiing off and people were just holding, please let me just leave this country. Let me just go. Let me just get out of here. And there was a particular one where the person actually dropped and fell down from the sky. There was no more space. But friends, that's not what the gospel is like. That's not what the goodness of Jesus is like. The goodness of Jesus is like when you have Christmas party. And there's so much food and you're like, um, can they go and give uh, Mrs. whatever this food? I said, mommy, we've given her. Eh, there's enough. Just go and give her again. Why? There is more than enough. And God is saying to us that as many as come to Christ, there is more than enough room for you with him. Don't hesitate. But this means, friends, that we must wait in hope. If God is committed to finishing that which he has accomplished, then it means that no matter where you are at in the process of becoming like Jesus today, there is still hope. 
Some of you are struggling with sin. Some of you are battling different addictions. Some of you have been stuck in a pattern. But the truth is, the more you look like Christ, the more you wait with Christ, the more you journey with Christ, God keeps you by his commitment till he gets you safely home. But this also means that we must wait in patience. Some of you know what it's like to learn driving from your sibling or your spouse. Who knows how to drive? They are usually very impatient. And my wife is rolling her eyes right now because she will say, that is who you are. It's just hard. Like, how will I be teaching this person who is just learning how to drive, to drive on the express so that they can bash my car? And then I'll now go and repair it and we'll still be saying I love you. Nah, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work. It doesn't work. But actually, we mustn't be like that. Many of us often forget what it was like when God just saved you and when you started becoming a Christian and you started joining in the person of Christ. And so we see somebody who is a new believer who gets it wrong and just, what is wrong with Christians of nowadays? What, what gospel are they even preaching nowadays? When I was a Christian in, fill in the blank. But must wait in patience. The same God who extended his grace to save you then is also the same God who is extending his grace to these people. The same God who extends his grace to you daily as you journey in becoming like Christ is the same one who is extending his grace to them now. We must be waiting in patience. So how are we kept through the waiting? We are kept by God's commitment. But the second thing Paul shows is that we are kept through God's community. Through God's community. And so Paul knows our tendency to be very individualistic. To sort of think this is about us and, you know, just, oh, what it means that, oh, God is now working me and he's going to just get me safely home. But he, he, he tells us something else in verse 26. He says, greet all God's people. And if you've been with us throughout this series, this is something that we've seen again, this whole thing about community, this whole thing about the church. In fact, one of the images I love so much is in Hosea chapter 2. The, the entire book of Hosea, really, God tells the prophets, go and marry an Omawobe, okay? Go and marry this person and give them the weirdest names ever as a sign of my judgment. And so he tells them, he tells him, have three kids. And name the first one Jezreel. Name the second one No Mercy. Name the last one Not My People. Basically, what God was saying is, marry this Omawobe and then name the first child Ekoma Baje instead of Ekoni Baje. Name the second child Ika instead of Anu. And name the third child Tioluwako instead of Tioluwani. That was what was going on there. And in one of the most powerful images of what God does in the gospel, in Hosea chapter 2, verse 21 to 23, God says, in that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. Let's go to verse 23. And he says, the person who was no longer, I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Jesus becomes in the gospel. Jesus becomes the one who is God's person. And comes to rescue us so that we now can become God's people. I was watching Prince of Egypt. Some of you might know the cartoon um, with my son recently. Just trying to introduce him to the classics. Sound of Music is next. Um, if you haven't watched any of those movies, well, God be with you. 
But one of the scenes in that story, and he kept all through, he just wasn't watching, wasn't paying attention. When are they going to cross the Red Sea? When are they going to cross the Red Sea? That's all he kept asking all through. But one of the scenes in that cartoon was where Moses, as the prince of Egypt, is running after somebody else, and then he comes across this man and this woman, and then the woman is saying, you actually are my, you are my brother, you, have become, you are one of us, you are the one meant to rescue us, and the guy is saying, no, you don't know, I'm going to punish you, and all of those things, and then he eventually runs away, and then he comes back, and then he apologizes to her and says, you were right. In the gospel, actually, Jesus does us better. Moses doesn't ever become one of those people, but Jesus actually becomes one of us. Jesus enters into our pain and suffering. Moses doesn't enter into the suffering and pain of his people. Moses comes from high, and then he rescues his people. Jesus comes from high, he comes low, he becomes one of us, takes on our shame, our sin, our suffering, so that we then can become God's people. And so Paul can then say in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that the church is the one that has been bought with Christ's blood. If that has never gripped you, please take some time when you get back home and pray that God makes that grip you. How is it possible that in a room of all shapes and sizes, colors and clothing styles, God can say all of us, have now become his people. But Paul says, actually, that how we are kept through God's community is by three things. And so he shows three things. The first one, missional prayer. In verse 25, he says, brothers and sisters, pray for us. And this is interesting because if you've been following the story of 1 Thessalonians, you know that all through, Paul has been the one praying for them. Paul has been the one praying that they will become more like Christ, praying that God will help them, that the gospel will advance. And now he's asking, pray for us. In other words, there is no person in the Christian life who doesn't need prayer. And then he says, not just pray for me, pray for us. Pray for the entire team. Not pray for me, the big guy, and forget about the small guys because what they are doing is not really important and the one who has been charged with the good news of the gospel and the one who is really going to preach that. No, no, no. He doesn't say, don't pray for me, pray for them because, you know, they are still learning work and they don't know a lot of things so that, you know, God can help them to match. No, no, he says, pray for us. All of us need prayer. But it's not just a random kind of praying. It is praying so that the gospel actually advances. And it's interesting because in this passage, Paul doesn't give any prayer points. If you are familiar with how Paul writes his letters, he would usually say, pray for us about something. Like in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, pray for us so that we can speak the words of God powerfully and boldly proclaim. But here, he doesn't give any prayer points. In other words, Paul is saying that you don't need to know what the prayer point is to begin to pray. And many times, many of us are like that. I don't really... What am I going to pray about? City Church, what do they even need, Seth? I think, I don't know, I don't think they need anything. No, Paul is saying, pray for us. Pray for our health. Pray for our finances. Pray for our spiritual maturity. Pray for open doors. Pray for strength. Just pray for us. Isn't it interesting, brothers and sisters, that part of the reasons I think that we have been hearing lately of many scandals of pastors and churches and all of those things is because 
the work of God is not being prayed about. We could conduct a poll here. And I'm not trying to shame you. I'm also talking to myself. How many of us actually pray daily? As much as we pray for our needs, how many of us actually pray daily for the advance of the kingdom of God? Yes, we, we, maybe you even pray. Maybe you pray about other things. But what Paul is showing us here is that in the community of God's people, praying about the mission must actually take pride of place. Paul is not depending on his strategy. He's not depending on his 10-year plan. He's not depending on all the people he knows and all the connects he has and all the contacts he's made and how he can write letters and ask for funds. No, no, Paul is saying, pray for us. If God doesn't do anything, we cannot do anything. So I like the way a very, 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 very old pastor puts it. He says, Oh, it is at a fearful expense that ministers are ever allowed to enter the pulpit without being preceded, accompanied, and followed by the earnest prayers of the churches. It is not a marvel that the pulpit is so powerless and ministers so often disheartened when there are so few to hold up their hands. The consequences of neglecting this duty is seen and felt in the spiritual declension or the spiritual condition of the churches. And it will be seen and felt in the everlasting perdition of men. While the consequences of regarding it will be the ingathering of multitudes into the kingdom of God and new glories to the lamb that was slain. Did you catch that? Part of the reason why we we are not seeing the revival that we are all talking about. Why the churches are in the state that they are is because we are not praying for the work of God to advance. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't just say, pray about the mission, this, this thing that is nebulous, this thing that is actually just up there. He says, pray for us. Pray for specific people. Pray for me, Paul. Pray for me, Timothy. Pray for Timothy. Pray for Silas. Pray for these people. Can I ask you, can I beg you, can I urge you, city church, please don't think that, oh, these people already have all the theology sorted, and these people don't have any problems, they are great, they are all that, they don't need prayers, please pray for us. Pray for your elders, pray for your GC leaders, pray for staff, pray for your unit leaders, pray for us. We all need the power of God as we go about the mission of God. Because the truth is actually, just like with your regular work, those who do the work of God also get tired. Those who do the work of God also get tempted. Those who do the work of God also have needs. But then if everybody expects you to be the doctor who doesn't have any health challenges, how can you ever have those needs met? Pray for us. In Exodus chapter 17, the children of Israel are fighting against the Amalekites. And Moses stands under God's instruction. He stands over a mountain and he's looking down. And Joshua is the one leading the Israelites. And the Amalekites are fighting. And every time Moses was there lifting up his arms in prayer to God and petition, depending upon God, the people of God were winning. But when Moses got tired and dropped his hands, the people of God started losing. And then Aaron and Hur, who are leaders in, 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 the, in Israel, are looking around and they see what's going on. And they say, no, 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 we have to come to this man's aid. This man is just an ordinary man. He's tired, he's weary. And so what did they do? They get him a stone and they hold up his arms. And that is how the people of God were able to win. Can you decide, like Paul is saying here, to be Aaron and her for the people that God has placed in authority over you? 
Can you decide to regularly pray for them? Can you decide like, like, like Aaron and her do to Moses and they bring him a stool to sort of have comfort? Can you decide that I want to be the kind of person through which these people are refreshed and nourished? Pray for us. And so we are kept through God's community by missional prayer, but also kept through God's community by radical living. In verse 26, he says, greet all God's people with a what? Wow. I don't know if you've heard all those stories, right? I remember hearing a story. This was before. It's always interesting what stories you, you hear before you enter secondary school or university or you start to work and all of those things that scare you. And so I remember hearing a story before I entered university about one campus fellowship where, because of this verse, guys and girls were making out, right? And sort of, you know, they're greeting all God's people with a holy kiss. Just so we are clear, in case anybody doesn't really understand what Paul is saying, he doesn't mean that we should start kissing each other, okay? If anybody comes and tries to kiss me, apart from my wife, I assure you it'll be the last time we try to do it. The equivalent of a holy kiss that Paul is talking about here is like a warm embrace, okay? Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. But it's so, so, so important that Paul is saying here, all God's people, not the ones you kind of gel with, not the one you kind of roll with or the ones you know back in the day or from work or the ones that you guys, your IQ is on the same level and all these other people that you're not really, you know, they don't get it. They don't know what's going on. Paul says, all God's people with a holy kiss. And friends, this was countercultural in the time because the church was the only institution where you could have slaves and masters, husbands and wives, all of these people gathered in this sacred place worshiping God together. And what Paul is saying to us basically is that if your friendships and associations can be explained by pure sociology, you're not living in the light of what it means to be a Christian. If you are friends with the people you are friends with simply because you guys all have things in common, then you're not living in light of this passage. Paul is saying all of God's people, all the people that God has redeemed, all the people that God has rescued. And why? Why? Why is it that I can't just sort of be on my own and become a Christian and be kept by God? Why do I need God's community? Paul's answer is that it is because God wants us to be known. God doesn't want us to just sort of just live on the margins or sort of just do our own things. God wants us to be known. So I promise you this is the last quote for today. But C.S. Lewis, who Toki always quotes, C.S. Lewis, a Christian writer, in a sermon called The Weight of Glory, says, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you will be strongly tempted to worship or, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. 
all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all plays, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Did you get what he said? He said it is impossible for you to think, it is possible for you to think too much of your own glory, but it is impossible for you to think too deeply of the glory of the other person. In other words, God's plan is that each of us will be helping each other on as, as, to becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And so if you are not part of God's people, if you are not committed to living within God's people, you are not actually continuing on that destination because you need other people to make you more and more like Jesus. There are no ordinary people you have never talked to a mere mortal. So we are kept through God's committee by missional living, by uh, missional prayer, by radical living, but also by scriptural fellowship. And so in verse 27, he says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. In the ESV, Paul says, I put you under oath. And what Paul is basically doing there is evoking a courtroom imagery. He's saying, take this Bible and swear that you will make sure that this letter is read before all of God's people. And when Paul is talking about reading here, he's not just talking about, oh, let's just read. He's talking in the sense of, for those of you that did literature in secondary school, all of us literature buffs, it is like what you do in literature class. You've read a novel. You've read maybe like three pages or three chapters. And then you come together and then you discuss it. Oh, what was this person saying? What was this person, what did this person mean? What was this person doing? And then how should I then think about the world in light of this thing that I've just read? That is what Paul is saying. He's saying that the gathering of the people of God should be around the word of God. And not just the word of God. Oh, we've just read it through. It is, what does the word of God mean for me? How should I conduct myself now, here and now in this life? And so if you are part of a church where, or, or you, you are ever in a place where all that is just happening in the church is not the preaching of God's word, it's just jamboree and parties. No, that's not a healthy church. Paul says that one of the marks, one of the ways in which God keeps us is through our continuation in the word of God, paying attention to what the word of God says and means and how we should conduct our lives in that regard. But did you notice, did you see it? It is communal. You can't see. Let me just, let me just, let me just, for everybody who is rolling their eyes and saying, not again, you can't get away from community in the Christian life. You cannot. Paul says that I want you to read this letter in the gathering with all the brothers and sisters. It is communal. In other words, your pastor cannot be somebody you are watching on YouTube. Your church cannot be something that you are seeing on Instagram. Yes, I know. You are, you are always there every week. You even join them for the service when they are starting. Paul says that it has to be communal. You can't be part of a church if you are not known, if you are not plugged in, if you are not committed. Paul says that the gathering of the people of God must be around the word of God. And that must be in such a way that the word of God has implications for your life and for your own soul. 
Yes, I know there are things that make it hard. Yes, I know maybe where you are living is far away, or maybe, maybe it's just impossible for you to regularly commit, but the truth is you cannot, you cannot be in the Christian life without committing to a local church and joining with a body of believers around the word of God. Isn't it interesting, friends, that many times when people say they are struggling with their faith, if you probe enough, those people aren't in any local church. Isn't it interesting that part of the doubts that we have about our faith often comes from traveling alone in the Christian life and not plugging into a church where we can be held accountable, where people can say, oh, no, no, this thing that you did is wrong. You're meant to live in light of God's word like this. But I also want to appeal. There are some of us here, right, that you've been coming we're happy you've been coming. You've been coming for many weeks. We're happy about that. We thank God for what God has been doing and accomplishing in that. But that wasn't the way God designed his church to be built. If you've been coming to church for a while, but then you are still sort of on the margins, you are still wondering, no, I, can't, I, I don't like all this. Can I plead with you? Can I beg you? This is God's plan. Not that you are sort of on the margins or on the outside and just, you know, when it's convenient, I can just hop in and then, but ah, I need counseling very quickly. Please come and counsel me. And then when that is done, I sort of move away. And you are treating the church like a drive-through Mr. Biggs. I like it today. Yeah, I'll get it. But then I don't like the meat pie. It's just the donut I want. I don't like the music. I'll just take the sermon. No, no, that's not what God has designed his church to be. We are kept by, kept by God's commitment, but also kept through God's community. But the last thing Paul shows us here is that we are kept by God's commission. And so at this point, you may, you know, you may have already noticed, it may seem like the message seems contradictory because I thought, Emmanuel, you said God is the one who keeps us in, chapter, in, in, in the first point. But then you're now saying, oh, there are all these things that are meant to sort of do. Which is it? Which exactly is it? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13 says, Work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and do of his good pleasure. God calls us to do certain things, but those things are always and only on the back of what God has only accomplished for us in Jesus. But because of what God has accomplished for us in Jesus, actually, we are then free and empowered to do all the things that God has called us to do. But then I know that there are some of us here who are struggling because you know very much your own sins and your own imperfection. You know very much the things that you wrestle with and what makes it hard for you to sort of be kept in the waiting as you trust in Christ and as you journey along. I have good news for you. In verse 28, Paul says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What is grace? That word that we always throw around. Oh, he was running with so much grace. Oh, she was moving with so much grace. Oh, she was so graceful. What exactly is grace? 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, You know very much the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that even though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. In other words, grace is God's ability. Grace is God's disposition to us, so that in our ordinariness, God's power is made, through, is made evident in us through his own extraordinariness. Grace is all of God's resources to us at Christ's expense. And so maybe you're sort of struggling. Maybe you're wrestling. Maybe you, you, the Christian journey seems hard. And you know we're, we're talking about being kept through the waiting. And it seems like, man, how can I actually move forward? Let me just offer very quickly four points, four things that you can do, four quick tips. Speak, avoid, commit, no. Speak, avoid, commit, no. If you're wrestling with sin, can I ask you, please speak to someone about it. Often, the things that actually hold us back, they hold us back because there's nobody else who knows about them and who can hold us accountable. But then some of us, we are so wise. Rather than trusting in God's extraordinariness so that his power can then be made available in our own ordinariness, we trust in our own extraordinariness so that that then works in our own ordinariness. And so rather than avoid all opportunities for sin, some of us still sort of flirt with it. Some of us still have contacts that we shouldn't have. Some of us still have friendships that we shouldn't have. Some of us still have those details that we know that we shouldn't have. But the truth is that if you are going to journey as a Christian, the same way that when you are traveling and then there are, there are things you have to sort of remove from your bag so that you can meet the luggage limits, it is the same way that you must live as a Christian. There are things that you have to sort of remove and drop so that you can travel light and become what God has called you to be. You cannot continue doing all of those things and expect that the power of God will be made available to you. Don't trust in your own extraordinariness. Avoid all opportunities for sin. And I don't want to go into this because there are a lot of you that know exactly what I'm talking about. But then we've mentioned this before. Please commit radically to the local church. No staying on the margins. No sort of just hopping around so that, you know, I, I, yeah, it's convenient today. Rain fell. No, I'm not coming. Um, rain didn't fall. Yeah, it's great. They called me last week, oh, so I have to sort of come for the next three weeks. No, 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 please, commit radically to the local church. Commit radically to being part of God's embassy on earth, and in that way, God's power will be made available in your weakness. But the truth also is that we must know. Know that for many of us and for all of us who are in this for the entirety of our lives, some of us often think that because we've seen victory now for, for whatever length of time it has been, that it just means that we don't wrestle with those things again. But that isn't true. The same way in which you were cautious at the beginning, the same way in which you were careful in working with Christ, you must continue in that same way even now. So speak to somebody about the sin struggle. Avoid all opportunities for sin. Commit radically to the local church. And know that as you struggle with this for the rest of your life, the power of God will be at work. But there are some of us that as we've heard this sermon right now, we are thinking, why can't Jesus just come and take me home? Like, I don't have anything. And I genuinely, like, I don't have anything that is sort of just impeding me or making me, you know, struggle. 
why can't Jesus just come and take me home? It is because God is committed not just to the destination that you are going, but also to the process of being made like Christ. And so the more time that God has for us, he's preparing us, he's refining us, he's changing us, he's transforming us into the image of his son. He's making sure that your impatience can be worked on. He's making sure that you become more like him. He's readying us and preparing us for where he's taking us to. And Paul says, as we journey through life, as we go, God's commission is with us. We go with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not with our own power, but with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not with our own strength, but with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not with our own wisdom, but with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not with our own unlimited power, but with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not with all the things that we can do. Not with all the disciplines that we can, that we can muster. Not with all the things that we possess, but with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the only way we are kept through the waiting, the only way we are kept as Jesus journeys back for his bride is by God's commitment, through God's community, but also through God's commission, his grace at work in our lives. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.